One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Today on Truth and Movies. First up, the Star Wars saga comes to an end with J.J. Abrams' The Rise of Skywalker. Long have I waited. And now... You're coming together. Then the paws are strong with this one. It's Tom Hooper's big screen adaptation of Cats... And to finish, forget the Imperial March, how about the Family March? It's Greta Gerwig's take on Little Women. I intend to make my own way in the world. No one makes their own way. Least of all a woman. You'll need to marry well. You are not married, aren't you? Well, that's because I'm rich. All coming up in Truth and Movies, a Little White Lies podcast. Hello there, movie truthers. It's the end of the year and it's Michael Leader here sitting in the host chair across from David Jenkins. Hey. And Hannah Woodhead. Hello. How are we all doing? It's the last episode of the year. So very, very tired. <laughs> Not really. But only because I was, because uh, we, we, we went to see Star Wars last night that didn't finish till like half 11. And then uh, the review embargo was 8.01 this morning. Mm-hmm. So we had that eight hour gap in the middle of the night to uh, pen our reviews. Well, it's a little bit inside baseball, isn't it? But there was something quite rare this week where they had back to back press screenings for Cats and The Rise of Skywalker. So 6.30 start for Cats, then straight out and run across Leicester Square into The Rise of Skywalker. Quite a night of the movies. So I hadn't realised, maybe due to my ignorance, that the Cats world premiere was meant to be last week in London and they cancelled it. Uh, Always a a great sign when that happens. They cancelled it. Because, yeah, because the film wasn't finished. I mean, I don't know if uh, anyone would have seen that video of Tom Hooper on the red carpet in New York saying he was finishing the film at 2pm the day before the I mean, premiere. You'll, you'll understand that I didn't make it to, the, to see Cats yesterday, but I always think it's a good sign when a filmmaker is making a film hours <laughs> prior to its public release. I mean, you know, it's a good sign. Yeah, it's not and like he's had I'm, ge- two I'm years guessing. To work on I'm it. guessing that you guys are going to factor that in. We'll to, be talking about cats very yes. shortly. But before we move on to the films, any business to talk about, David? What's the lay of the land for the end of the year, Little White Lies business? Yeah, we've been sort of holding back on all our end of year material because I think we wanted to wait and see some of these big titles, which we have now done, and we will duly be revealing our top thirty films of 2019 on. Friday so if you downloaded the podcast on Thursday then that's tomorrow <laughs> and then we can, we've got a massive and really fascinating best of the decade list where we've got tons of our contributors who've sent in their top 10 and we've kind of polled a really big broad amount of people and yeah it's a really fascinating top 10 and that's going to we're going to sort of reveal those as close to the end of the year as possible or or uh, indeed the end of the decade as possible so and then after that we've got a really cool preview of all the stuff coming in 2020 so it's kind of out with the old and in with the new so fantastic keep eyes out for that and we are starting 2020 with a special screening aren't we hannah We are indeed. Uh, I mentioned it a few weeks ago on the podcast, but for anyone who did not listen to that episode, uh, you should definitely come and join us at the Prince Charles Cinema on the 9th of January at 8.45pm for a screening of the Safdie Brothers' Daddy Longlegs. Their, uh, well, joint debut, I guess. Mm. Uh, Josh Safdie made a film called The Pressure of Being Robbed beforehand, but this is their official first film together. It's fantastic. It stars Ronald Bronstein as this uh, New York father 
who is kind of frantically scrambling to keep his life together. He obviously is now their co-writer and co-editor. And I think it works really well as a companion piece to Uncut Gems. So you can go and watch that and then hang around for a little uh, live podcast. Mm-hmm. with. The, I think the three of us are going to do it. Yeah, yeah, oh, fantastic. Yeah. And we have a signed Uncut Gems poster signed by Josh and Benny Safdie mm-hmm. to give away. So it's worth staying in your Very seat. Cool. Swag. <laughs> so only only a couple of them, I think, knocking around. So so yeah, mm. definitely stay around. And, uh, Wonderful. Hope to see some of your listeners there. Whilst on the subject of cool swag, can I do some uh, very <laughs> brazen big pimping to all our listeners who still have yet to get down the shops and uh, get get all their prezzies in? Um, okay. Head to please do consider heading to the Little White Lies Christmas Shop uh, via our website and. Uh, We've got a lot of cool stuff, books, games, magazines, subscriptions, prints, bags, badges. So anyone who has any vague interest in film or culture or art or (laughs) just just who you think is an interesting person, this could be an easy solution for you. Fill your stockings. I could be a madman, couldn't I? (laughs) You mean as in madman? Yeah, yeah. Who knows, I'm, really, David, I'm, with some of the takes you've come out it's with. Like, over it's years. like I'm selling literally um, like John Kodak Hamm. again. Yeah, like John Hamm is in the room right yes. now. We should talk I'm, about Star I'm, Wars. I'm really, holding a whiskey we? right now. <laughs> we'll see how <laughs> much of a madman you are, David. <laughs> Let's kick off this week's new release chat up first with Star Wars: The Rise of Skywalker. J.J. Abrams is back in the director's chair for Star Wars The Rise of Skywalker, the ninth episode in the saga 42 years in the making in which the surviving resistance forces face the First Order once more. clip from the rise of skywalker there we should say of course if you're at all spoiler phobic we're not going to go into spoiler territory but if you want to go in completely clean why are you listening to a podcast yeah the conversation will still be here once you've seen the the podcast go and see the film come back we're not going anywhere can i just say like i'm i'm very immune to spoilers what before seeing this film i hadn't seen any trailers hadn't seen any clips of it hadn't read anything about it hadn't read any of the interviews with the cast and crew they're the real spoilers. The pre-game marketing is the spoiler stuff, not the actual film itself. So, um, yeah, I'm 100% fresh on this. And? Were you excited I'm... to go into this one, David? Where were you on Star Wars? Okay, a short history of Star Wars for me. <laughs> <laughs> I never really got on with the original trilogy. When I saw the prequels, I was not very impressed with those. I since rewatched them and actually think they're quite interesting and intriguing and, and mad. I really liked The Force Awakens as a kind of bolt of nostalgia. I really liked Last Jedi because it's actually like a proper piece of filmmaking. It's a film where a director has sort of taken a franchise property and tried as best he can to imprint his name on it. And I think, you know, largely successfully. And this new one is the kind of, I think it's, I mean, even the, the, a film like Empire, sorry, not Empire Strikes Back. The 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 one after that, the um, Return of the Jedi. Return of the Jedi, which is kind of you know the one that sort of shrugged off a bit as the sort of silly one. Right. I really like that film because because I think it at the very least it has its own enclosed storyline. It goes all in on the Ewoks, and you know you, you're there in the shit with the Ewoks. <laughs> Whereas like. <laughs> Well, you all are. In. It's George. all it's Ewoks all in. That was that was the original title, but um, but this new film is kind of the ultimate in bland wiki score setting. It's like taking loose threads, tying them up, and saying, "Look, we tied them up." And it's quite a slow. It's it's not a car crash, but it's just a sort of slow. It's a it's quite a slow burn realization of like oh dear, they're doing this, aren't they? We're kind of joining our regular gang of, uh, you know, Ray and Finn and Poe and they're in the Millennium Falcon and they're flying around and they're going to places and they're doing things and picking up trinkets and unlocking secrets and finding clues and 
engaging with monsters and using special powers and yada 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 and and then we, it's it ends up being a, quite a sort of bureaucratic film in a way in that it's just like we're, we're, we're sort of closing up shop you know we're going to end things on it in a very sort of neat diplomatic cordial friendly nice way that nobody can complain about but at the same time nobody can really get excited about mm-hmm. it's the kind of very bland non-offensive happy <laughs> joyful just nothing nothing star wars movie in, in my opinion <laughs> i think it's impossible to watch this film as any sort of engaged fan be that a film fan or a star wars fan and not see this film as a course correction after the way the last jedi was received by some quarters of the star wars community i mean there's absolutely no doubt in my mind that obviously the film is not out until this friday and it's going to be a big movie but whichever way you slice it but you know solo didn't bring in the bucks mm-hmm. and that was that was the kind of like oh dear maybe maybe we're not completely bulletproof in terms of like you know our our kind of assured commercial reach for these movies um and frankly, I, I, it's a hard film to to think that there's going to be fans wanting to re- go back and re-engage with it. It's it's very kind of WYSIWYG, you know. <laughs> it's 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 all it's right there for the taking. No ambiguity. No 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 sort of like I don't know. Maybe the absolute hardcore might want to go back and see a few little kind of callbacks or references that are thrown in into the mix. There, there were, you know, I'll admit that there were. At the screening we we attend, all attended last night, there were a few moments where there were sort of moments of applause for things that that didn't make much sense to me. <laughs> they were like, you know, so, someone gives something to someone and there's a big like, hooray! And I'm just like, okay, fine, that's cool. <laughs> As somebody who got that reference, um, there were this, this felt like a film where J.J. Abrams is trying very hard to please the audience. And a lot of that is just grab, d- digging into his Santa's bag and saying, here's a bit of fan service, here's a mm-hmm. bit of pandering. And there are many of those cameos, callbacks, maybe references to some deep part of fan community lore. It's all there and uh, it really tries. You, you mentioned audience reaction there were pockets of cheers but nowhere near the scale of what would happen in a marvel movie when that happens mm. and it really was quite marked to me the the the, the proportion the, the smaller proportion of the audience responding and it just feels that star wars just can't reach those heights of everything coming together and, and paying off in the way that the infinity war films did hannah you were a big Last Jedi fan, right? I was indeed. I gave it a, a rave review mm-hmm. on uh, LittleWhiteLies.com two years ago, and maybe even on this podcast. I, actually, I can't remember who did the podcast, but still, I stand by it. I uh, when I interviewed Ryan Johnson about Knives Out, I had to be very like cool, calm, and collected <laughs> rather than just being like, "I love your movie so much. <laughs> I love what you did for Star Wars." So yeah, I, I mean, <laughs> I think a lot of people when JJ Abrams came back, a lot of the Last Jedi denouncers were very like, yes, finally, JJ's back. He's going to guide this ship home. And I was like, oh, no, he's going to undo absolutely everything that uh, Ryan Johnson kind of worked really hard to set up and make. Um, it felt like The Force Awakens was kind of rebooting this universe, bringing us back in. And then The Last Jedi was taking us to a new kind of galaxy and somewhere exciting. And it's kind of like, wow, where are we, we going to go now? You know, this film has kind of ripped out the pages and started again. That's why I really liked it. It felt like someone was trying something new. Mm-hmm. And I think The Rise of Skywalker <laughs> is is course correction, but in a very kind of boring autopilot, nothing is exciting or fresh about this film. It's all just shut up and play the hits, mm-hmm. which I think a lot of fans probably wanted. Can I give but... you an analogy that I've just thought of? Okay, it's, <laughs> like, it's like J.J. Abrams is the teacher who sticks really rigorously to the curriculum. (laughs) And Rian Johnson has come in as the kind of mad supply teacher who's, like, (laughs) taking you out on the field, going down the shops, field trips, all that kind of stuff. And then they've looked and thought, oh, no, they're too overstimulated. Let's get J.J. Abrams back to, like, force the curriculum down their throat again so they pass their exam. It's it's Dead Poets Society and Ryan is Robin Williams. And I'm standing on the desk. You're standing on the screaming, desk. Screaming, right my now. captain, my captain. We can't go too deep into this film, but can we talk about maybe what was in 
The oh. Last Jedi that maybe hasn't travelled over here and what they're bringing back from The Force Awakens? I think the sense of risk in The Last Jedi, not just in a kind of what Ryan Johnson was doing, but within the plot, like the stakes and the fact that characters were allowed to make mistakes and things didn't always pay off. And they, you know, uh, I think Poe Dameron in particular in in particular in The Last Jedi, he makes poor choices and he has f- failings. I think all the characters actually in uh, in Last Jedi are allowed to kind of be human and fallible and they can't just wave their hand and everything is uh, fine, which mm-hmm. is what I would say happens a lot in Rise of Skywalker. This film felt so unsatisfying to me as someone who really liked the other two films and felt there was a really great interesting character arcs and this one really kind of it's not so much that it undoes the work it just doesn't do anything Mm -hmm. you know I think that so many characters kind of just grind to a halt in this film you know their motivations and their um, growth just doesn't go anywhere it just feels like they stop everything kind of stops and I think in particular some of my favourite characters maybe didn't get mm-hmm. the kind of satisfying conclusion, what I would think is a satisfying conclusion. And I think as well, like, there's a big plot point in this film, which I won't spoil, but I think it just kind of is a real... Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm trying very hard not, not to um, word this in a way that will spoil it for anyone, but I think it's very disingenuous what J.J. Right. What Abrams does with a, with a very central relationship to this, to this, to this uh, franchise. But, you know, I mean, in terms of the good stuff, there's a lot of Oscar Isaac in this film. I think he is so magnetic as an actor and he's I think he's kind of struggled in general to find good roles since Inside Lewin mm-hmm. Davis. But um, Poe Dameron, I think, is one of the better ones for him. He really is this kind of, you know, I think he has the same like Harrison Ford energy. Mm-hmm. He's very, very charming. He looks even more like Indiana Jones in this one than any previous film, doesn't like, he? You know, if they're, if they're going to make another Indiana Jones give them the call mm-hmm. like it, it's a no-brainer I think that's one thing you you can't really criticise this film for because also it wasn't this film that, that did it but they cast that new generation quite well oh I, th- I know totally I think that even I, I mean even Daisy Ridley who I don't think is the best actor in the mm-hmm. world I think you know she, she really has like kind of carried it she has, she has to because the whole film is you know even more so I think than the original trilogy where I think it felt a little bit more equal between Han, Leia and Luke. I think that Rey really is... Everything is, like, centred around her mm-hmm. and, like, her abilities and her heritage, which yeah. has been this big, looming question. I do think John Boyega maybe gets a raw deal here. I don't think he has as much to do in this film. He, I think he's one of those characters that had more to do in The Last Jedi yeah. and they're not sure what to do with him in this one. Yeah. And he he's a fascinating actor. I still haven't really got a handle on his on-screen persona of course such a breakout star of attack the block mm. I, he he's he's the person that probably fits most awkwardly into the franchise's new hyper earnest but quippy tone mm. which i think uh, uh, oscar isaac manages to just effortlessly navigate i think he's definitely got that kind of like 70s you know certain sort of like charm about him mm. oscar isaac bless him but, I mean, Richard E. Grant as well. You and I were singing his play- praises, I think. It's a shame he came to this so late because mm-hmm. he would have been a great villain. So like. he he plays baddie general number 55 and yeah. he is just, he's so syrupy and he's just dripping with... He's oh, eating it up he's and I'm great. eating him up, eating it up. If he was born 10 years earlier, he would have been all over that original trilogy and he's having the best time, I'm sure, as the sort of foil to Donald Gleeson as well. I think he his presence is the only thing in the film where you think it's kind of combustible. You think anything could happen here. Yeah. You know, like he 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 is he is the I think is the sole presence in the film where if he's on the screen you're kind of thinking, Well, I am not entirely sure where this is gonna gonna go and how he's gonna turn out. Yeah. And I think to just to sort of underscore what you were saying, I think the performers are doing their best with, with, with what they've got, but the reality is they just haven't got very much. I mean they they've the script really puts you know character work and development and emotion on the back burner in terms in in favor of like really dense plotting and you know like logistics of getting a to b and and making sure everyone ends up in the same place at the same time that you just there's no pause for breath in this film mm-hmm. i mean 
you know, it's a, is it two hours, two hours 20 or two yeah, hours 30? So it's two hours 20 and uh, you could have easily stretched it to three hours and had a few pauses or moments of contemplation that you just do not get here. And I think, uh, you know, Rian Johnson's film as well, one of my sort of fond memories of it is that there was a sense of dynamics of like, mm-hmm. a, there was a big epic scene and then a big quiet, and mm. then a kind of quiet scene of, of talking and, and actually, you know, talking about things and issues. Whereas like this, you just like the talking happens simultaneously with something else or the communication is done through other means mm-hmm. that are maybe less interesting. I mean, I mean, one of the things I, I the, one of the sort of really strange things I found about this film I don't know if you guys agree, but in terms of the storyline and what it's you know w- what it's trying to do, it's quite convoluted in that they're going around these various places, and a lot of the script is people trying to like explain to a potential younger audience what's happening. <laughs> and by the end, where you have the big kind of you know there is a sort of big showdown at the end, there is a character who says the same thing about six or seven times to basically get across the stakes of the film because essentially you otherwise wouldn't get that. <laughs> you're at the, the big climactic moment of nine films and you're at a point where they need to shout at you about six or seven times, this is why you should be interested. So, um, so perhaps doesn't trust its audience in the way that Johnson did with Last Jedi and they're, they're fearful of that happening again, leaving those gaps for interpretation where they, they were burned from certain online discourse. One of the things that I think I wrote in my Last Jedi review is that Star Wars has always been quite good at dealing with, or the new trilogy certainly, the first two films I think were very good at dealing with like moral shades of grey and kind of ambiguity and I don't think there's any ambiguity in this film it's mm. very didactic it's like this is where we're going this is how it is and and these are the good guys and these are the bad guys and this is all heterosexual romance as well which I just had to throw in <laughs> you got to throw that in well, there well just because J.J. Abrams himself dug himself into a hole by saying there will be queer representation in this film and there is for what two about, seconds what about the gay Ewoks <laughs> <laughs> back to the Ewoks David <laughs> the Ewoks. David what scores would you give Rise of Skywalker in so, anticipation enjoyment in retrospect so anticipation you know I would probably say it's a four despite Probably being quite cynical about them before I saw them, I ended up actually really. I, I, I've I've really liked all the, the the sort of new Star Wars films I've seen, including Rogue One, which I think actually now is a film that it's because it's so focused on a single plot. Actually, is is so much better for it. It's a simple thriller, and it's a film that I'd be much more excited to revisit than, than than maybe one of these sort of canon films. And then it's probably just a two. It's it like for enjoyment. I just it never does anything necessarily terrible or <laughs> it's never like outright bad but it just it's never good it's ne- <laughs> there's it's there is never a moment which which just leaps off the screen and and, and i mean you know Rian Johnson he gave us some memorable scenes and memorable images and this does not give anything memorable like i mean it's it's a very very forgettable film so 422 for me hannah yeah, probably similar. I do disagree with David in that I think there are things in this that are outright bad. And, and Michael was sat next to me, and I I am sure he will fondly remember the moment when I said, "Oh God!" Um, at one you didn't scene. say, "Oh God!" It was it was oh redacted. <laughs> um, yeah, there's, I heard there's, it there's too. one. There's one very. I, I knocked a cup over in frustration. There's one very late scene in the film which I think is just. Well, I've already hinted at that. I think it it makes no sense and is stupid and shouldn't be in it but anyway um so it was like a four in anticipation mm-hmm. you know I, I also had that sense of fatigue where i was just like let's just get this over with let's just all like clock off you know and same with avengers you know i'm just like come on now let's do it let's get this part of our lives done and then yeah it's probably, I, it really pains me to be giving a star wars a two and a two but I just can't see myself watching this again I, I feel so kind of let down and deflated by it and talking about memorable scenes you know I, I the last time I watched Last Jedi was two years ago like, I watched it twice when it came out in cinemas and I can still remember so much of that film so vividly you know the throne room scene and the casino scene and the when the the ships are all landing with the red smoke and everything i can all remember this so vividly couldn't tell you half of what happened in uh, rise of skywalker what that film looked like mm. i only saw that 12 hours ago maybe last note here i'm genuinely fascinated to see what the 
the quote unquote online community make of this one because yeah. it would be kind of hilarious if they got mad at it and did their whole like continue doing their whole we need to, to take claim of, of the Star Wars IP and make our own movies to correct the this this trilogy like, I mean the thing that annoys me most about the online community is that this film is if people don't like it it's going to be Ryan Johnson's fault they will make it Ryan Johnson's fault some people have already said that they've, they've teed themselves haven't they as Last Jedi left them with nowhere to go which is just it's well, not, even, well, not even worth I, not even worth a rebuttal. I'm very willing to hear from those people to see what they make of this film. If they like it, if they find something in it, you know, fair play to them. I'd love to hear from them and yeah. de- send I'm us sh- emails sure and will. tweets. <laughs> you know, at Truth and Movies, Truth and Movies at tcolondon.com via email. You know, we'd love to hear them. But for me, oh, I love Star Wars. I really do. I really did. And this is the film that makes makes me think that maybe as a film franchise, it's like X Men, where you get one or two good films and then on the macro scale it's badly managed no one knows what they're doing and in the end it just doesn't amount to anything I really. haven't yet seen The Mandalorian which I might watch over Christmas well well when, when it when it officially is, re- is released yeah, in, we're getting in early Europe January when Disney Plus comes out I hear good things about it there's yeah, a baby so Yoda in that there's a baby Yoda there's um Pedro Pascal. I'm, I'm just going to mm-hmm. retreat into the comics and the books as I always <laughs> Freddie do. Freddie Prince Jr. in the uh, cartoon version. <laughs> exactly. Star Wars Rebels will live on. <laughs> anyway, that is Star Wars The Rise of Skywalker. Let us know what you think about it if you do see it, and you probably are. It's the big movie of the season. But next, we're going to talk about the other big movie of Christmas Cats. In Tom Hooper's big screen adaptation of the long-running Andrew Lloyd Webber musical, a tribe of cats called the Jellicles must decide yearly which one will ascend to the heavyside layer and come back to a new Jellicle life. A nice blast of cats there. Hannah, you and I saw this last night. David, you had to miss out. I did, unfortunately. So do you want to take the wheel for this one? Yeah, no, I'd love to. I mean, you know, Tom Hooper, personal arch nemesis of mine, so <laughs> always interesting to see what he's up to, you know, keep tabs on on his on his crazy schemes. Obviously, he's, he's sort of became famous with King's Speech mm-hmm. and, and Oscar Glory and then uh, has sort of like pivoted into show tune uh, <laughs> IP uh, film adaptations uh, with his um, unwatchable Les Miserables so this is Cats Andrew, you've got Andrew Lloyd Webber you've got Tom Hooper you've got um, show tunes you've got the recipe for maybe the worst film of all time on paper mm-hmm. we'll get to you in a minute Hannah I know you've got things to say about this uh, let's start with Michael who's maybe what's your relationship with the Cats saga so I've gone throughout my 30 odd years of life not knowing anything about what Cats was about I knew it was based on a T.S. Eliot bunch of poems I knew that there was a dirge of a song called Memory that was a hit in the early 80s I knew that it ran for a long time but it wasn't an Andrew Lloyd Webber musical I knew much about. And so I had no idea that basically it's a bunch of cats just singing about their life, eating food out of rubbish bins or skulking around Soho. It's not my thing. I'm not a musicals person. I've said that on a few episodes recently where we've covered musicals, so I don't even know if the good version of this film would have been my sort of jam, but this was definitely not my jam. It's a massive, ugly film. People might have seen stills or the trailer. Go through go through ugly, because, I mean, are you referring to the digital fur technology here? Well, the, te- oh, the technology. Well, they've spent a lot of money on this film, but you wouldn't really be able to tell. The actors do go through this transformation through the digital fur technology, but it just looks weird. It looks DFT. like DFC, they've uh, DFT even. Uh, they have just pasted their faces onto 
these bodies where they're still human in shape and you can still almost see human anatomy moving underneath this fur. They have feet with toes and hands with yeah. fingers. Do you feel that disconnect between like face face and body? Then? At times, yeah. yeah. It feels like, um, you know the movie Ex Machina where Alicia Vikander's <laughs> face was pasted onto a cyborg body? It felt a bit like that at times. But the most unnerving moments were where you could almost see... Well, let's just say there's one moment where Idris Elba disrobes and you see full dad bod and it's um, strange, very strange. Seeing fully nude actors as cats, it was strange, very odd. But the ugliness is also in the setting, the production design as well. It's a very... It, they, they, they trace out a certain area of London between Trafalgar Square, Leicester Square and into Soho, which is quite recognisable to some of us, particularly us where we'd literally just walk through that location to go into the cinema. The Statue of Eros is a key location, as are the, the lions at Nelson's Column. But then there's this sort of corner, which is deepest, darkest Soho in a early 20th century setting when it's still a bit of a red light district type area, theatre district. And it just looks ghastly. It really does as they sing and prance about and if singing and dancing is the sort of thing that sets you on edge don't go and see this film is my conclusion but I really am not the person to ask about whether this is a good version of Cats that's um, the cat correspondent's job really and I think Hannah's made a good fist of marking herself out as that you know Hannah is a, is a one person industry in Cats uh interest shall we say <laughs> on the, the the release of the first trailer you did a a lengthy fyi uh, so sorry faq tweet about all the with mini profiles of all the cats to you know help people make sure they're not making mistake about you know what they're going to be getting with this film and considering your you know what i understand to be a genuine and sincere love of this property do you think um, Tom Hooper has done it justice for you? I think that Tom Hooper should be tried in The Hague for crimes <laughs> against humanity. A little bit of a story for the, for the dear listeners of Truth in Movies. I saw Cats in the Sheffield Lyceum when I was about seven or eight years old and my grandma took me and I thought it was the best thing I'd ever seen. I was on an aisle seat. The cat, if you ever go and see Cats the stage show they come through the audience and they have like little cat like lights and it's all very like amazing if you're do you think they'll do like 4dx versions of <laughs> tom hooper is going to be crawling through the yeah. audience <laughs> um, cat, cat so friendly screenings they should do they yeah. should do cat friendly screenings because at least then you'd have a cat to pet instead of watching the terrible movie anyway so um i saw this on stage and i thought oh my god this is amazing this is what theater is i love it i want to sign me up i'm here for the long haul and cats was my gateway drug into stephen sondheim into other even other andrew lloyd webber like you know i i I, uh, like phantom of the opera I, i don't like starlight express but um personal feelings about Andrew Lloyd Webber as a person aside I do like quite like I have a bit of affection for his mm-hmm. musicals and yeah I think Cats as a cat lover as someone who um, thinks that cats get quite a bad rap I like Cats the musical I, I think Memory is a great song I've sang it many times mm-hmm. I don't think it's a dirge at all I love T.S. Eliot Old Possum's Book of Practical Cats is one of my first kind of books that I read as a child reading on their own for the first time genuinely 100% sincere that being said when the first trailer for Cats dropped maybe there were some people out there who read my thread on Twitter and thought that I was genuinely very sincerely thinking this was going to be a good film at no point have I ever thought that this would be a good film I thought it would be entertaining and it was just not the kind of entertaining where I can in good conscience tell people to go and spend money to see this film I would not recommend people see this pay to see this film I would recommend they maybe get drunk on mulled wine and you know if they've got nothing better to do with an evening go and see this film mm. but I mean everything you've said so far Michael I completely agree with it is a an ugly abomination of film it is terrifying yet also like deeply boring at the same time can i can i just hold you on a, on a, mo- a note this moment yes i'm interested in the ugliness can you can you kind of drill so, deep into the nature of that ugliness so the the we talked about it on this podcast a few weeks ago in fact when we discussed 6 degrees of separation a plot point in which they discuss that sydney uh, sydney poitier is going to make a film version of cats and the 
conversation. In fact, Ian McKellen is in that scene having this conversation. He's in this movie of cats. How would you even do a film of cats? When you're in a theatre, when you're in a proscenium arch, you can believe that these people wearing leotards with tails pinned on, running up and down the aisles, mm. are cats. But when you're meant, when you're trying to create a fully realised world around them, you have to think about things like scale. You have to think about <laughs> where the humans are. And it all feeds into that. The opening shots where you see what is recognisably humanoid creatures walking around where traffic bollards are double their size, but they're walking on their hind legs at some points and then on their paws. It's just visually confusing mm. and doesn't ever look right. And then they've they've tried to do to turn Leicester Square into this sort of neon-lit, visually resplendent world where all of the the signs are based around cat puns. Apart from one very big one. A very strange bit of product placement for Bovril in this. Yeah, the big Bovril. So all, so all, My all, favourite all, food. All of the, um, the the stage shows and all of the adverts up in lights are cat related so there'll be of course the mouse trap etc playing yeah. in, in these, those theatres and then suddenly Big dramatic scene. Big Bovril. <laughs> then big Bovril. To hear that I genuinely love Bovril and that would make me want to see the film. Yeah. But also the, the, the ugliness as well though is that Tom Hooper non-aesthetic yeah. where it, it's there for, I, I quite like The King's Speech to be honest I, I don't, don't, don't love it but I, I enjoy parts of it but it's a very ugly film and his camera work is, is, is strange where in this one it's a CGI 360 Wonderland and he's still adhering to shaky handheld camera where mm. we can't really tell there's a fantastic dance sequence happening with some real you know, top-notch dancers but we it, we can't get a handle on the scene so it's is very it, is disorientating it, is it a, is it a f- pure sort of CG nightmare or is there any yes. kind of practical stuff in it no I th- so th- I think this is the greatest disappointment um, is that you know you go and see the stage show and the, one of the great joys of the stage show is the costumes and the makeup and you can kind of tell which every cat is because they have a costume and they have very specific markings and the set in the stage show is literally just a big, uh, like a, a rubbish dump. That's mm-hmm. it. And this you kind of, I guess when it's a film, you have to flit around a bit more, make it a bit more interesting for the viewer. But I can't fathom the decision to make all of it CGI. I really think that this is a film where they just needed to do great costumes and great makeup because it every cat just looks exactly the same because when you have these big wide shots with loads of them you can't tell you can't tell which is which mm-hmm. and it all just looks so fake and a bit shit can I, can but, but, I <laughs> fake in a way that it, this should be a spectacular film this should be visually exciting there should yeah. be a real vision behind it if this was Baz Luhrmann's Cats for example and Tom Hooper isn't Baz Luhrmann as we know there's no opulence, and, mm. and that's what they're going for. Because Cats, the musical on stage, is not an opulent production, mm-hmm. but this is what they've sold this as. You know, all the marketing. They've got, like, branded Tattinger for this film. Cats branded Tattinger. They're like, have a lovely evening. Come and watch the Cats, the movie. And, and it's just, it just all feels really cheap. I said to Michael yesterday, it looks like a unfinished graduate CGI film. That's what it looks like to me. All those weird Snapchat filters that turn you into a cat. It looks so... I can't... I mean, I don't know how much money was spent on making this, but it's it's impressive to make it look so... Like, they've put no work into it. But maybe, maybe that was a conscious decision, so they could have that sort of Snapchat social media crossover <laughs> occur more easily. Now, I want to quickly get a, a little note in about the... The music. Cause my mm. mother, um, she um, in our car when I was young. I've got a little story, little cat story. <laughs> she would rock the uh, original cast recording of Cats on tape, and I'm pretty sure it got like jammed in the tape player. So that was like amazing. That was it. That was it for us. And I always remember it was like you know it was quite quaint that you could hear the orchestra pit and you could you could hear the echo of the room a bit and. I haven't heard any any of the the new versions of the songs in this in this what in this film, but would I be right to assume that they're kind of auto tune atrocities? I don't think there's not much auto tune no, on that. I just oh, okay. think they are like everything else in this film, like totally kind of soulless. Mm. The only one I will give a, a shout out to is um, Taylor Swift does the Macavity song, and <laughs> she 
I was talking to a friend of the pod, Simran Hans, about this. The huge musical theatre energy that Taylor Swift brings to that three-minute scene. She has clearly studied. She has clearly trained for this. She's only in it for three minutes. She literally comes in, does her song and leaves, which is totally fair. But she, I think, is genuinely very good. And she she has the, the vocal range. She has the kind of, like, the choreography down. That in isolation is fine. The rest of the scene and the kind of the way that propels the plot forward I think is ridiculous. So do you say would you say Taylor Swift's your top cat? What's the um, ranking? I do th- I mean I what? think her performance let's, let's is not very rank. Good. Let's go let's go top cat. I want to hear the bottom cat. Okay, so the top mm. cat I think is Ian McKellen as Gus the theatre cat. He genuinely, you know, we were saying this yesterday. When you pay for Ian McKellen, you get Ian McKellen and oh, he he is very good. He's playing this kind of old shambling his best days are behind him, theatre cat, like reliving his glory days. And it's very sweet. And then I think also Jason Derulo must say, Rom Tom Tugger, I think he's great. He does a Cockney accent. I think Derulo? He, Derulo he, does a Cockney he's done accent. It. Yeah. And I think he's great. Bottom cat, James Corden and Rebel Wilson tied. Absolutely terrible. Just, just absolutely not. Just no. That's they're, it. They're, That's they're, my they're view the, of those the two. Comedy cats. They're the uh, fat comedy cats. Two, not not one. Two cats. That their entire personality is oh, fat. I'd say Ian McKellen's hot cat for me. Bottom cat, more out of cringing in my seat for this particular actor, Ray Winston as Growl oh, no. Tiger, <laughs> who's just there to scowl and talk in the strongest Cockney accent he's ever attempted I, on screen. I enjoyed that. I don't know why he was there. I don't know what. Hello, why I'm, I'm getting I'm getting general enjoyment vibes yeah, exactly. from you. Like, yeah, like, okay. Quite spirited. I mean, you know what? Like, I'd much. You rather... said war crimes in the war crimes in the Hague. Yeah, no, <laughs> He's it getting is. Off. It is. He's getting off and getting compensation. It is a, at this, it at this is a war crime, but at the same time, I'd much rather sit through cats and have something to say about it than sit through Star Wars and have no emotion whatsoever. Cats, I think, is like everything that is wrong with cinema. But I can't deny that it made me feel something. It made me feel horror and fear and disgust. I was sitting right next to you, Hannah, right now. <laughs> <laughs> but when I came out of it, there was a sense of, well, I know that I'm going to have such a good time talking about this with my friends. Maybe it was worth it after all. Maybe the collective bonding experience that was Cats has but made I, me I think it's of... a similar thing to The Greatest Showman, isn't it? I mean, yeah. so it sounds to me like, you know, it's a, it's a kind of self-conscious camp folly that people are going to... Oh, I don't think it's self-conscious oh, at all. Okay. No, I think Tom Hooper seems beaten down by this project. He's, I, I think I, The Greatest Showman, I think, was the film that was supposed to be made, right? And I think, I think also Hugh Jackman is so kind of... He he knows he knows what he is. He know he knows he's a he's a variety entertainer of a of a man. He's not like mm, well I am actually Hugh Jackman the serious mm. actor, whereas I think that Tom Hooper really thinks that he is I'm some kind of I'm an artist I'm an auteur. And Hugh Jackman was in control of that project. Yeah, yeah no he, no one is in control. <laughs> no, here. this is a, a bit of a mess of a film. I mean it's it it was you know that clip that you talk about with um, Tom Hooper on the red carpet <laughs> looking like. A shell of a man, essentially. He worked for 36 hours straight for that final yeah. sign-off. And then are you happy with how it looks, Tom? And he's I th- very I much happy that it's the done. Here's, here's, here's an idea for the future. If anyone's list, any film producers listening, Gus Van Sant Last Days-esque document chronicle <laughs> of Tom Hooper's last 36 hours making cats. I like that. It's yeah. I mean, I even think a kind of Christopher Guest-esque, yes. like... The behind the scenes of making. No, it's got to. It's got to like, be dark. It's got to be like Abel Ferrara <laughs> directing or something, or, or the Safties. So, so, Hannah, what scores are you landing on for this one? <laughs> it's hard giving scores to this film because do I give it scores based on how much I enjoy the thought of this film and the thought that people spent time and money and effort making it, or do I give it scores on the piece of like absolute garbage filmmaking it is? The I latter. mean. Okay, I mean, I get. I just gave Star Wars a four-two-two, so mm. l- let's go a two-one-one. I, genu- oh, wow. I genuinely think this is appalling, and everyone should be embarrassed who was involved with it. Okay, uh, well, probably similar for me, two-one-one. <laughs> but then this is really not my sort of bag. I know that maybe people will really enjoy this, and we, I'd love to hear from people there's a, who are going there's a story, to see this. I think on I can't remember which website it's on. If you Google it, it'll probably come up about um, the lost adaptation of this film that Steven Spielberg was trying to mount in the nineties. I mm. want to say he wanted to do an animated version. I guess kind of like a little bit Disney esque. 
And I think that would have worked completely. I think that's that, that's what the source material needed. There's still time. Just give it 20 years. Yeah. There is actually a, a Judy Garland animated film from the 60s called Gay Paris, where she plays a cat. And it could be one to, <laughs> to seek out. It's quite good, actually. Oh. Um, but um, on that note, I just, just before we go into to Little Women, to say I always find that I'd much rather see a one-star film than a two-star film, just to <laughs> recap on, what, on on the discussion so far. So... You know, will you go and see cats with the uh, with the family? I think I might do actually. Yeah, As, again, I like to keep tabs. If you on, could send us a voice memo, I'm sure yes. we can. You've got to keep on tabs on him. You've got to know what he's up to. Tom Cat. So that was Cats and the Rise of Skywalker, both in cinemas this week. Up next, we have a preview of a film that's coming out on Boxing Day, and that is Greta Gerwig's take on Little Women. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Greta Gerwig follows Ladybird with this adaptation of the classic novel in which four sisters come of age in America in the aftermath of the Civil War. Let's hear a clip. This is Meg, Amy, Beth, and Joe. I intend to make my own way in the world. No one makes their own way. Least of all a woman. You'll need to marry well. You are not married, aren't you? Well, that's because I'm rich. Joe, would you like to dance with me? I can't because I scorched my dress. And Meg told me to keep still so no one would see it. I have an idea of how we can manage. A little clip from Little Women there. David, should we be excited about this? In a word, yes. Uh-huh. <laughs> I think while while Tom Hooper is, is in the dock, I think that Greta Gerwig should be put forward for a sainthood for this movie. So this is her, her, her third directorial film mm-hmm. after um, Nights and Weekends, which she made as, as a little kind of mumblecore collaboration back in the, the noughts, the mid-noughts. And then... Um, Obviously, she sort of went full bore uh, auteur with um, Lady Bird, which got lots of Oscar traction and, uh, you know, it was next big thing moment and a film which I liked and emphasis on the word like rather than loved. And I went to this with, you know, I was unsure of how how it was going to go. I think it was it's kind of a bold passion project for the director and I think it's a film that you it's one of those films that you kind of get you earn the right to make rather you know you, you have to have a kind of decent success to be able to make a, a kind of opulent literary adaptation like this and um, I was just like in raptures throughout mm. like I mean it was it was a film where every scene every frame every line just hit home and uh, it was a kind of a story and the the way it was it's been realized and uh, the sort of general sort of bittersweet very melancholic tone of the film is just handled so beautifully so the story is that you've got 
uh, Joe March, played by Saoirse Ronan. She's an aspirant writer who is parlaying her life story and the story of her sort of family relations into these tales that she's selling off to to a kind of local rag newspaper and they're kind of buying them up but sort of suggesting quite heavy edits on them and then we kind of follow her back to her sisters played by Emma Watson and Florence Pugh and Eliza Eliza Scanlon Eliza Scanlon and um, mother played by by Laura Dern and then you've got this kind of romantic foil he's kind of a dastardly romantic foil from next door played by Timothy Chalamet who's very, very good. And it's kind of like watching this family evolve through time. It sort of plays na- like hard narrative very lightly. It it uses Gerwig's kind of adaptation of the book, adds some time switches where you're kind of moving back and forward in time and seeing moments connected together through 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 time, which works like amazingly well. And like th- her use of like seasons and production design and light just get re- every scene anchors you in in a moment in time and like when you see it connected to other moments in time you just really get a feeling of like oh that's that moment is lost forever and we're moving on to this other other thing and it's also about memory as well in that mm. it's this blessing and a curse and things happen in your life that are gone physically but are with you forever and in the end the film is about this kind of tragic position of the artist being saddled with these this responsibility of I, of of what to do with these memories of like joyful family life. Um, I just loved it. That I mean, sounds it's really remarkable because so much of the marketing around this film, of course, Greta Gerwig coming off Lady Bird, which was such a hit with those youngsters on on the internet, and of course they've assembled the Avengers of Standom yes. here <laughs> with Saoirse Ronan, Timothy Chalamet, Florence Pugh. You know, even the the old the older folks like Laura Dern, very hot right now with with certain audiences. Um, but it it seems like there really is something there. Hannah, what did you think of the film? I was very skeptical. I mean, I love Lady Bird, but I think the trailer for this kind of gave me. Oh, it just seemed very safe and quite nicey, nicey and. I'm not a big period drama fan, so there needs to be something to kind of draw me in. And even that cast, I, I don't like Emma Watson as an actor. I don't think she's very good. I'm Notice not, I left her out of that list. Yeah, I'm not a um, I'm not a, a Chalamet stan at all. He's fine. Even after meeting him. Well, yeah, I met him. So we recorded a little video, which will be going live hopefully very soon. Of um, We did a little interview with Saoirse, Greta, Florence and Timmy. And um, Saoirse and Greta, two of the most charming, hmm. lovely people I've ever met. Uh, Florence is nice. Oh. I think she was very cold. There seemed to be some sort of... <laughs> Temperature-wise or mood-wise? Uh, Temperature-wise, she had to go and change because she got a skirt on and she went oh, and put okay. jazz on. I think she was cold. Bless her. Uh, Timothy, I mean... Maybe it's an age thing because I'm like five or six years older than him, which doesn't seem like a lot. But when you're in your kind of a, he's like 22 and I'm 27, and maybe we're just at different points in our lives. <laughs> were, were, you, were you interviewing him the day when all of the female members of the cast and crew looked incredible, yeah, and, and he was uh, wearing, wearing a, a grungy t-shirt. old gorilla's yeah, t-shirt? Yeah, Re- really, uh, you know, get much to think about. I mean, I, I think he's very good in Call Me by Your Name. And I, I thought he was pretty good in Beautiful Boy, even though that film has been widely decried by many. I, I like that film. Um, but The King, I thought, was was terrible. I thought he was woefully miscast in that. But I actually think in Little Women, he, he's very good. He really comes alive in this cast. And I mm. think a lot of it is because he has really great chemistry with not only Saoirse, but with Florence Pugh. A lot of his scenes are with Florence. And they work so well together as, as Amy and... Uh, uh, Laurie, I think they really, they whenever they weren't on screen, I was like, go back to them in Paris. I want more of them. I think they they really have a good chemistry. But also, he just looked like he was having fun, which I don't think Chalmay often looks like he's having fun in these films. I think that next year in June, he's probably going to not look like he's having much fun. I think he's quite a serious young actor. Right. Whereas the character of Laurie is so kind of foppish and buoyant, and I think that really does kind of come across in this. And I think the one the one thing I would have liked more of 
was uh, Louis Garrel's character, Friedrich Baer, who's the kind of other great love interest in uh, in Joe's life, who I think we don't really get a, a kind of convincing reason as to why she would decide to marry him in the end. I don't think it's a spoiler, the book's very old. But yeah, I was genuinely surprised at how much I liked this film, right. having having not really been that enthusiastic about the prospect. I'm enthusiastic about it. I've not seen the film yet. One thing I can't really get a sense of, within all this hyperbole, I, I, I do love many <laughs> of the actors. Saoirse Ronan and Florence Pugh really are just god tier right now for me in terms of young actors. In the annals of the period drama, if we want to use that term, mm. what sort of film is this like? Is it like Sense and Sensibility, where it's drilling down into some sort of essential wit and humanity? Is it like Love and Friendship, which is putting a, uh, an auteurist spin on it? Is it something more classical than that, David? Do you know what? The film that it reminded me of, uh, the, in fact, the two films that it reminded me of that are very, both very different in that they're very much more tragic movies, it's um, Scorsese's Age of Innocence and and also Terence Davis' um, House of House of Mirth, right? Which are two like very very sort of tra- you know tales about tragic women, but it's more it's more this idea of like that there's something very cinematic about these adaptations um, in that like Scorsese Terence Davis have like they've like they've almost like consumed the essence of the books. And this idea of adaptation is is fascinating for me because it's like you've got you've got adaptations that are like okay they're very academic and they're like this is what people say this book is about here are its themes mm-hmm. we need mm-hmm. to create those themes in the book I think great novels are ones that you you can, can there is sort of like lassitude in how you can interpret them and you can you can build your own takes on them and you can create your own focal points and. I think that the, these set of films, including Little Women, are really you really get a sense of like this is a take on on the book. This is like someone who really cares deeply about these words, these characters, and, and has interpretations about what they mean, the import of their actions, and how they translate, and, and how important like nuance is as well. It's, there's nothing about this film that feels like oh I, I've I've like cut and paste words and just put it into a script because you know we need to get the, link this scene to that scene. It's it's really about like every scene is like working towards something bigger and, and actually the film feels very like a singular thing. It's almost machine like in that everything is working towards this kind of single idea. Mm. And I think the same thing is for for like Scorsese, Terence Davis. They're, they're like you're getting this essential essence i know that's right. i know it's the same An thing essential but essentially you're getting this essence of meaning uh-huh. that in itself is like you know almost teasing you between like this is the book but this is my book you know right well what score would you give this then david sounds uh, like is it two two one again yeah <laughs> i'd probably i'd probably say four because i wasn't i wasn't necessarily expecting like you know to, to absolutely adore this film and i i did so fives Wow, two fives. I'm just like, I think one of the one of the other things that has really boosted my enjoyment of this film is watching how much David enjoys this film. <laughs> um, and we, I hear a little lies. We we generally, I, I say, broad strokes, the editorial staff agree about things. Um, but when Adam or David, I think I am I am a more sort of like enthusiastic critic than David and Adam sometimes, maybe because I haven't been beaten down by life yet. True. But whenever I see David or Adam like pop off about, about how much they love a film, it really warms the cockles of my heart. So when I, when when I, I come you... back to the office and I'm like, Alita Battle Angel absolutely rips. Okay. Yeah, that, yeah, that, did, that didn't like... warm my heart because then I went and saw it and was like, what? What? So yeah. Are you going to piss on his chips now, Hannah? No, I'm not. No, not at all. Um, I, I think actually it's one that I really want to watch again, especially after watching the other two films we've done this week. It's like a, a I, I guess a four in anticipation, maybe a three slash four, just because I was quite apprehensive. A four enjoyment and a four in retrospect, which might might go up to a five depending on a rewatch. I do think it's such a warming, like a hot toddy of a film. It really is like a, a tonic in these kind of cold, unforgiving times, and a great film about like loneliness. Specifically, the kind of loneliness you feel as a young woman moving to a big city and not knowing anyone, even with the, this kind of, it's this great taboo that you can have a lovely, a, a loving family, a very supportive family, and still feel so deeply um, disconnected, alone, and disconnected. And I think that 
that's something that I don't often see articulated um, in cinema, and it, I, it's really lovely to feel a film. I think the analogue is something like Judy Garland in Meet Me in St. Louis. That is, mm. that is Judy again. Oh, yeah. Mm. But, but she, you know, it is. it has got that same vibe. If you know Meet Me in St. Louis, which is like, you know, one of the sort of classic Christmas movies, it's like... It's family life, but then then you're focusing on this person who just is confused and disconnected and mm. and slightly kind of depressed about the future. <laughs> and how fitting for us to end on a Christmas movie, uh, David, <laughs> yeah. like we planned it. So, listeners, if uh, Cats or The Rise of Skywalker don't really do it for you, it's good to know that Little Women is just on the horizon coming out on Boxing Day. And that's our lot for this year. Uh, we'll be back in January with the usual big hitters and deep cuts <laughs> David Hanna thank you so much for joining me this week thank you thanks I'm Michael Leader and as always this has been a 7 Digital production hey it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad high quality fashion without the price tag say hello to Quince I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.